And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of the Truth Radio Show. Outoflimitsradio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. The topic we are going to cover tonight might be very uncomfortable for some people. I want to give you a heads up on that. However, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that we have a history of diving headfirst into uncomfortable and controversial areas. What would you do if you had to make a decision about taking the life of another because they were threatening you or your family? Would you be able to kill that person? Would you be able to live with yourself knowing you killed that person? Tonight with five experts, we're going to discuss the psychological and spiritual ramifications of killing someone in self-defense. It's something that all of us may have to do one day, and I want to point out something real quick. On the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, we cover a lot of metaphysical topics, but we don't share some, if not most, common New Age philosophies that say that, oh, you shouldn't have a gun, you don't need a weapon, you just have to change your vibration and you'll be safe. I think it's a bunch of bullshit. I think you have to be a little realistic. You have one body and you have to protect it. If you have a family, you have to protect them. Some recent studies show that as much as 70% of Americans believe that a second civil war will happen. I mean, should that surprise anyone? Violence is not only appears to be increasing in America, but across the world in general. Also in America, there's a massive increase in people who are in favor of Marxism, which is the bedrock of some of the worst totalitarian regimes in the history of humanity. It's like this evil cult that people have been captured by. And people in evil cults act immoral. We often hear this phrase that, oh, Peace is so difficult. Peace is too hard to attain. I think that's another bunch of bullshit. Peace is easy. It is so easy. And it rests on one simple principle. Do no harm. There are two types of people in this world. Those who wish to be left alone. And those who will not leave others alone. 100% of the conflicts happen because of the second group, which appears to be growing bigger with each passing day. The peaceful people, the type A's, they pretty much can get along with anyone, regardless of how different they are or what their backgrounds are. The type B's, on the other hand, the violent freeloaders, they don't care about getting along. The type A's don't care who the type B's are, as long as the type B's leave them alone. 
Some of the Type B's won't do that, and some of the Type A's will resist being infringed upon. Some of those Type B's may even initiate violence. Let me tell you something. A lot of those Type B's are in for a very rude awakening. Now, before we begin the show, I just want to say that I hate violence of any kind. I love and respect Dr. Ron Paul and his passion for peace, which is also echoed by Gerald Salente and others. I hope for your sake and for my sake, we always look for the peaceful solution. Let us begin tonight's show. Welcome back to the program. It's Dr. Carol Lieberman. She's a board-certified Beverly Hills psychiatrist, an award-winning and best-selling author. You've seen her on every major outlet in the news. And you can learn more about Dr. Carol by going to her website at terroristtherapist.com. Dr. Carol, welcome to our show once again. Thank you so much. Excellent. All right, Dr. Carol, what do you think are some of the short and long-term mental health effects someone, especially if they're a nonviolent person, can expect if they kill someone in self-defense? Well, even if someone is killing in self-defense, in other words, they have um, a reason, a good reason for what they did, there are still psychological effects that um, can last for many, many years. For example, um, PTSD, of course, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, from the trauma of it. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder comes, there has to be a, um, a danger. You have to feel danger or threat to your, to your life, to your body. Um, so when you kill somebody, particularly in uh, self-defense, you, ha- you do have that. So um, also you are likely to feel depression, guilt, shame, especially because you're having conflict in your mind. You know, even though, you know, maybe this person was coming at you with a gun or a knife or, um, you know, broke into your house, uh, you know, certainly there would be a reason for you to have uh, killed them. But um, you still feel conflicted inside yourself. And so that would cause shame and guilt. And you might try to cope with all of these different uh, mental health problems by using alcohol or drugs or having other kinds of behaviors that self, um, self-sabotaging and um, self-destructive behaviors of your own. In other words, causing your, destroying yourself, attacking yourself. Well, so would you please, what are some of the signs that a person has post-traumatic stress disorder from killing another? Um, some signs are nightmares. Uh, of this attack, uh, things related to this incident. Um, there are avoidant and intrusive signs from when you have PTSD. So intrusive signs are you are signed that intrusive thoughts and feelings um, come into your life. In other words, when you're doing something else, you're not even thinking about it consciously thinking about what happened. You're engaged in something totally different. And all of a sudden you get, uh, thoughts about this killing, uh, just coming into your mind and, and not easily pushed away, just demanding your attention. 
Uh, avoidance is where you would want to avoid anything that reminds you of this trauma. So depending, you might want to avoid the spot that this occurred at. Let's say it was on a street corner or something. Um, you want to avoid uh, people who look like the person that you killed. You'd want to avoid um, any, anything that would remind you of it because those reminders are triggers that would then um, get you to be overwhelmed with these intrusive thoughts and these feelings of fear and shame and anxiety and, you know, all of the bad feelings that come from this are come up in you again. Hey, and what are some of the ways that a person can cope with depression and regret for killing someone, even if they were a hundred percent justified? And I also want to add the element in, in in addition to killing, I mean, initiating violence, if you have, if somebody's coming after you and they are a threat to you and your family, and you have to use violence to prevent them and stop them from doing that, or you have to kill them, yet you suffer from depression and even regret from that, what are some of the ways you can cope with that? Besides uh, psychotherapy, yeah. <laughs> that is the best way, that is the best way to cope with any of the feelings uh, that are a result of the injuring or killing somebody, even in self-defense. Um, but in addition to that, you know, something more proactive that you can do, um, well, going to therapy is proactive, but uh, something in addition to therapy is uh, volunteering. So uh, if you feel guilty and shame and so on, um, you can, you think you did something terrible to this person and to humanity, and how could you have done such a thing? Uh, volunteering is really the antidote. And particularly, let's say you killed or injured um, someone from a minority or someone who has some kind of particular, someone who, um, let's say, is a parent. And so you might particularly choose the place that you volunteer at to help people in that minority or to help parents or to help kids, something that, I mean, that re in a way it's a trigger um, because it reminds you of the incident, but it's you're doing something to help people in that kind of circumstance. Uh, thank you. And if someone commits an act of murder or violence and they do it one time, do you think they'll have an easier time doing it in the future? Or do you think that sometimes some people, it could be a one-time thing? So I'm wondering if, if you know, you experience that for the first time, I guess some people who have killed others have been prolific serial killers say so there's nothing like the first time, I guess. It's very unique. So the people that you've interviewed and uh, work with is the first time really the, the, the Rubicon and that any time after that, if they have to initiate violence or they have to kill someone, it kind of doesn't have the same psychological impact or it becomes a little bit easier to do. It all depends upon the underlying personality of the person before this incident took place. If someone um, is a sociopath, or uh, of course, then they wouldn't be feeling so guilty. But if someone... Um, you know, the best example is if someone has been spending hours and hours playing violent video games, 
um, they will, and then they actually kill somebody or injure somebody in real life, it will be easier for them to um, do it again. But if someone um, was appalled and is really suffering from all of these different psychological um, consequences, then they will be less likely to kill or injure again. I'm really glad you brought up the violent video games because I've heard this theory before, and I don't know if this is correct or not, but my understanding is that the brain cannot tell the difference between reality and what it is imagining. Apparently the same things that light up in your brain when you're imagining or when you're having a fight or flight uh, situation in your brain. Apparently it isn't, there, there's a, a very similar to a waking reality. And I bring this to your attention because if a person is visualizing killing another or experiencing virtual worlds as you brought up with video games and then the situation comes down to when they actually have to kill someone do you think in some way shape or form that people who are constantly immersed in violent video games and movies are in a way shape or form training their brains preparing their brains to be able to kill another with ease in the future absolutely and in fact um violent video games are used to train the military because people have, it's human nature to have an aversion to killing or injuring another person. Um, I mean, again, unless you're a sociopath, but for most people, um, you are programmed to not want to do that. So that is why it's hard for people in the military to actually uh, kill people, to kill the enemy. Um, and, you know, it's, it's thought that one of the problems that people have in the military is that they're afraid of dying, you know, when they're on the front lines, that they're afraid of dying. And some people are, but what they're even at least as much afraid of is um, killing people. They, they, there is this inborn, fortunately, this inborn aversion to actually killing people, even when they're the enemy. So that's why, uh, you know, and again, people who want to say that watching hours and hours of video game, violent video games don't do anything. Um, obviously, the American government feels otherwise. And I, don't, I doubt the American government is alone in doing this. Um, and that is so clearly they think that it does work to help people become less uh, afraid of killing people. Uh, I appreciate your answer. Can you please discuss a little bit about the human shadow? And if a person has a disconnect with their shadow, does that imply that the shadow and their waking consciousness are going to be in conflict together, especially if a person is under threat? And also, is it only the human shadow that is capable of aggression? Do uh, people who have the shadow or in touch with their shadow, is that only capable of aggression? Or if people who are sociopaths, do they have like a waking consciousness that's fully capable of aggression? So I'm just curious how the human shadow plays into that. If the shadow is the only part of the, of the brain, the psychological composition that is uh, able to be aggressive and create, initiate violence. Well, um, 
the shadow was originally a Jungian concept, and I'm a Freudian. <laughs> but um, but basically, what they are both saying, you know, whether you call it whether Jung calls it the shadow or Freud calls it uh, the id, or you know, both of both psychoanalysts um, have talked about that how the mind has. Um, Parts of the mind that are, well, Freud said, two parts of the mind uh, are inborn, aggression and sex. And which is why, of course, we see this in modern times. I mean, Freud was right um, that movies, for example, or television shows or anything that has violence or sex sell much better than things that don't. So, um so this shadow part, you know, could be looked at as this, as the part that houses um, the part of the brain or connects to the part of the brain that is the trigger for, for violence. Now, this doesn't mean, I mean, the one thing that people don't quite understand, a lot of people, is that it doesn't mean that uh, just because we have this capability or this primitive uh, part of our brain doesn't mean that we have to be violent or that it's normal to be violent. Um, these things are need to be triggered in a sense. Um, and, and what Freud talked about is how normally this part of the brain, you know, call it the shadow or the, the id or the unconscious, um, the dark side, um, this part of the brain um, is really uh, um, supposed to be what happens to it is in childhood it gets socialized. I mean, in norm if a child has a healthy development, then this aggressive or violent or dark side or shadow becomes socialized into ambition. So it's not expressed as the child grows up uh, in, in healthy circumstances as actual physical violence but it turns into ambition, it's, it's competitiveness, it's drive. And so in other words, there was a good part of the reason, of, there's a good reason for why our brain contained this dark side. Dr. Carol Lieberman, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Again, Dr. Carol is a board-certified Beverly Hills psychiatrist. She's an award-winning, best-selling author. One of her awesome books is called Lion, sorry, Lions, Tigers, and Terrorists. Oh my, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. I've read this book a couple times. It's awesome. It's for parents and kids. Feel more about Dr. Carol by going to her website at terroristtherapist.com. Dr. Carol, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And it's a great joy to welcome to the program Lou Talano. He's the former chief of police and the former head of the New York City Sheriff's Association. He spent five decades in law enforcement. You learn more about Lou by going to his website at streetwisepro.com. Lou, welcome to our show. Oh, it's my pleasure. A little correction. Sure. Uh, it's New York City Sheriff's Department. Okay. What is the mentality of a person that a person needs to get into if they are going to defend themselves and protect their families? Do you think that a lot of people right now are mentally prepared to uh, take a life if needed be, and if so, why not? And, and what do you think some of the things that people could do to mentally prepare themselves 
to engage in uh, with somebody who's attempting to take their family's life because I think that violence is always around the corner. It can happen any time, but I don't know if people are always prepared for it because most people don't live in war-torn countries or they're not really used to nonstop engagement or readily prepared for it. Well, you're right. Most people are not prepared for it. So, But I found, uh, like a mother, uh, Chiga, uh, she'll do anything to protect her cubs. So pretty much uh, the average person, if you're home and you're up in your house with your wife and your children and you are invaded in your home, you will do anything to protect them, including murder. And you might not realize it until at that point and that time. Uh, I could base that also on experience because I've worked on cases that uh, were very similar. An average person, a rabbi and his wife in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, living in the housing project, uh, they were home invaded, right? Not only the, the husband, the wife picked up knives and they never thought they were so, after, after they uh, stabbed the intruders, they were in shock, but they instinctively did it to protect uh, the, themselves and their little kids in, in the home. So I think the average person uh, would do it instinctively. Uh, so uh, it's, it's rare where a person, well, I would think, uh, would just let people torture them and, and their family. Yeah, so, so I think it's uh, like more of a natural instinct. It's, it's a that. human natural Yes, yes. I, even even if you uh, you're meek, you know, it's you uh, automatically defend yourself and your family. So, yeah, I, I do. I do uh, believe that people will do whatever they have to sure. do. To, uh, you know, what are some of the things that a person can do to prevent themselves from ever engaging? in violence with another? Like, say, for example, are there any ways that a person can walk? Are there anything, way that a person can talk? Are there, are there any um, uh, types of body language that a person should be using? Are there any uh, types of just external behaviors that a person can, can, person can be engaging in that will prevent or likely deter someone else from ever wanting to engage violence upon them? Well, when I used to lecture uh, in these... In these uh, well, uh, different places where I was invited in regard to uh, security and, and safety. Uh, a, a basic thing like in Manhattan, there were young girls uh, coming home at night when they were uh, working on an evening shift uh, in an office or waitresses, and they would try to get into the building, and someone would get in back of them, put a knife or gun in back of them, and say, Take me to you to your apartment. I have to tell you this: ninety-nine percent of the time, the, these young females comply. And I used to tell them, "He doesn't know your apartment. Why would you take him to your apartment?" And then, you know, I'm talking to an apartment, talking about an apartment building. Say, use an example, Manhattan as an example. You take him to someone else's apartment, and if you know, and I use this as a sense of humor, and if you know a business big Italian family in the building, you two, three in the morning, you put the key in their door and you know damn well, someone's going to come to the door with a baseball bat, you know? So 
You don't you go to your apartment. A lot of these victims, they take them to their apartment. They don't realize. Take them to the superintendent's apartment. Put the key in the door. If somebody puts the key in your door. If you live in an apartment building in, 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 in a city, uh, at two, three in the morning, you're going to dial 911 or you're going to do something to protect yourself. So I would tell these people, there's no reason to take him to your apartment. He doesn't know where you live. Now, if you're trapped in an elevator and he tries to put your finger in the mouth, in your mouth, these are even, uh, even a guy, put your, and make yourself throw up. These are sort of defense uh, things, you know, just throw up. If you're a young girl, if you have the nerve and the courage, and a lot of girls from minority areas do. You say, oh, c- come on, man. I don't care. I-, I gave somebody age before. I don't mind giving it to you, you know? And they'll start thinking, well, they'll back off. Okay. So, well, I wanted to just, uh, that, add on top yeah, of that, let's say, for example, you were um, your man, and, you know, you don't, and you see people that are out there. There could be a number of different predators that are walking around. I mean, is there any way, uh, is there anything that would deter a criminal from attacking you? Is it if you if you act and sound crazy, will that deter someone from attacking you? If you look like you have a psychotic uh, look in your eye and stare off in his face, will that deter someone? If you let people know that you're armed, will that deter someone? Like, what are some of the other things that um, that will that will make the difference between why a criminal will attack someone and why they won't? Well, you, you just t- uh, touched on it. Uh, your body language. The street thugs can read your body language. Uh, and they'll know if the, you look at a person and he is the uh, perpetrator and he sees you're, you're a little frightened, oh boy, you're, you're an easy target. But if you walk, your shoulders up, you know, and if, you ha- and if you're a middle-aged or a young guy, Try to look like a detective or a cop, you know, and put your hand in your pocket, you know, if you want to, uh, and stick your pocket up. So he might say, wow, this guy has a weapon, you know. Uh, so those are different things that you, you, you can do. Obviously, if you can walk on the other side of the street, yes, you do that. Or walk into a, uh, a store that's open, you know, walk into a gas station. If, if you have to, to avoid it, you know. So I, I've known I've had cases where, uh, especially senior citizens, they would, they, they would live in a building that's, for an example, it's senior citizen, senior citizen uh, building uh, residence only. And you see two 19-year-olds in the lobby, and, 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 and they even tell you, I had a good feeling that something was going to happen, but yet they still go into the elevator with them, you know? So if you have that, like I'd mentioned, walk into a gas station or a light area, you walk out of the building, get out of the lobby and walk out. I would suggest to women and men carry something where you can defend yourself. Uh, if it's illegal in some states to carry uh, mace and things like that, uh, especially women uh, carry that can carry. You buy the cheapest hairspray, and a, a guy could carry that too. You, the cheapest hairspray will burn your eyes out. You know, so try to have something to defend yourself. Look, even if it's a knife, even if it's a knife, a pocket knife. So, but if they look 
you the target is the one that's vulnerable. Senior citizen, obviously. Overweight person, obviously. Uh, two or three against one, obviously. So uh, walk on the other side of the street. If you can, walk away. Well, if you can. Let's so, let's get to this point right now where, you know, avoidance is not an option right now. Now you, you're engaging with someone, and I guess one of the first things a person is going through the mind is that survival. So what are some of the best ways that a person can successfully engage an attacker? Let's say, for example, if they are armed or not armed, what are some of the best things that a person should keep in mind while this is happening? Because I imagine that you know when this is happening, your whole brain is out of whack. You're probably in thrust in a situation you've never done before. There's panic that settles in. And actually, um, I was thinking about one of the things that really Giuliani said in his book that he said that you know it's you have to remain calm when you're engaging in a high tense situation talking about how the boxer is so what is the mentality you need to have and what are some of the things you need to do if you are thrust into a violent situation well Ryan really is, is right uh, but not everyone can remain calm you know and and body language will show that person who's going to attempt to attack you that uh, you're vulnerable so take a self-defense course, especially women. There's a basic course that they teach you and you could use your car keys. That's what they do. You can go for the throat uh, or go for the eyes. Those are two things you can. Uh, like I mentioned before, the average person can't do it. But you should go and I'm talking because you, the question is, what would you do like today? What's happening now uh, in, the, in the country or whatever? So carry something we can use as a defense. Uh, and you have to, look, you, this is your choice. You either get hurt or murdered or attempt to save your life. I found, and I had, a, uh, my late partner and I had a major rape case in uh, East New York, Brooklyn, and they were all young uh, high school girls. And so one was actually 12 years old. And there were six other girls over over the age of 16 to 19. The only girl that was not raped is the 12-year-old because she was just screaming and yelling like mad. And it, it, uh, the intruder just ran because she attracted attention. So the other four girls were so frightened, they did whatever the rapist wanted uh, them to do. So, so, yeah, can you fight back? So your choice is, do I fight back and save my life? I say yes. Another basic thing, Ryan, mm. is people in parking lots, right, That to go shopping, especially women, and even men, because I had a case where it was a guy also carjacking. So you're accosted in a parking lot shopping center. You can save the person you had mentioned before, try to stay calm. Yes, you stay calm. Uh, you say... I don't know what you're doing. If you look up there, there's cameras all over the place. There's a camera on, on all these poles, you know? So, and, and then they're not sure. And you don't, you say it. it uh, and there may not be a camera on a, on a pole. There's cameras outside the buildings, of course. But you say, hey, we're on camera, you know? That's another thing. Now, a lot of times they say, get in the car, right? And they're going to take you to a desolated area. The cases that I have had that women were abducted, even men that were taken out of parking areas from a public uh, environment to a desolated place. 
Many of them were murdered. They were killed there. You have to say, if you're going to hurt me and kill me, do it now, right here in the parking lot. You say, do it now. I'm not taking, I'm not going in the car, and I'm not taking you in my car. You refuse to go into the car. Most people are frightened. They will comply. And they'll either let the perpetrator drive the car or they become a passenger. No, you make your decision right there in the van in a public parking lot. Those are some of the things. But I'd say this, Ryan, mm. carry your weapon, carry something that will defend you in the family, I, whatever it is. I keep a lot of pepper spray. I, I've, I, I always go out and buy pepper spray. I try to get the highest amount. And I always keep it with me. Um, and my wife's like, why are you walking around? Because in case, you know, in case you don't know something happens. Um, what is it? How does it feel to actually uh, to kill someone? Like, does it uh, is it sound does it feel unusual? Does it feel strange? I mean, it, if if you're doing it in self defense, is it something that should feel natural to someone because the person is coming after you? Like, what what can people expect to to feel if they have to do that? Well, I, I've seen different uh, uh, different uh, situations where people have killed in self defense, uh, and they're hysterical. Oh my God, I killed somebody, I killed somebody, I killed someone. You respond, I killed somebody, and you calm them down. You say, and, and you can't, you use your psychology at that time and moment pretty much dictates uh, what's going to happen to them mentally down the road. So you say, hey, you did the right thing. You not only saved your family, you saved someone else. Of course, this, and you have to exaggerate sometimes in your law enforcement. This is a person that killed other people. He would have killed you. He would have tortured you. He's going to, hey, this person continues to hurt people. You did the right, you compliment them. You know, you compliment them. Say, and even say, wow, no problem. You know, God bless you. You know, you did the right thing. That's uh, uh, one situation. Uh, it, myself, when my lay partner and I, in our lifetime together, uh, doing our job, we had, we had killed three people you know, doing situations and we both had not have a problem. In fact, we went to dinner that night after, after we had to do what we did. So, and we went and bought pizza, went to a Chinese restaurant. We maybe had a drink uh, over it. Didn't bother us because we know the background of the person that we were trying to apprehend and the situation, or a robbery in progress, where we had to chase somebody that was shooting at shooting at us, we retaliate, and we were the winners. Thank God, didn't bother us. Uh, when I was a New York City correction officer, uh, and I was in for over five years, I dealt with an area that were all stone killers. And I, I've committed murder. Some of these kids in there for murdering people that they mugged have no feelings whatsoever. Don't even bother them. It, it was like natural. It was like a way of, of life. They slept night, they were snoring during the, during the evening, and they had killed the senior citizen during the robbery. robbery. Don't even bother them. So that's, that's one type. I dealt with hitmen, and one person in particular, obviously I can't mention the name, he worked for the... Uh, Westies, uh, that was similar to the mafia, except it was an Irish mafia that sort of stayed low key. They ran the, they ran the waterfronts on the west side of New York. That's why they were called the Westies. The Italian mob 
did the Brooklyn and the Lower East Side, South Street, the waterfronts. So they ran the West Side, and it was an agreement between them and the Italian mafia. They had their own areas. The Westies had a killer in jail that his job, and he had murdered at least 19 people, Ryan. He got caught because, yeah, the person in the car that he was driving, who was driving with, realized, hey, this guy's going to kill me. It had to do with the uh, with the gang. And he said, wait a minute, this guy's really, and he fought him off and they had a car crash and he transfers, one of the transfers roads and going through Central Park. So he was apprehended. So now he's in the jail and I'm doing, well, I'm, I'm having a conversation with him. And I say, you know, you've killed 19 people. And when I'm working a midnight tour and when I walk through the area, you're snoring like a baby. Now, this is before I was a cop in the street. He says, you're snoring like a baby. And he says to me, you know, officer, he said, you have a job. He said, don't you sleep? Don't you snore at night? I said, yes. He says, well, this is my job. He said, this is what I do. This is my job. This is what I do. So I have no problem with what I'm doing. So, you know, I'm in my 20s. So what do they say? What is this guy? Is he a head case? Is he a psycho? What is he? Cool, calm, and collected. So if, if he wasn't apprehended, it would be number 20. And kept, it would keep going. So you, if you kill somebody because you have to to defend yourself, uh, that person may need uh, some therapy or counseling. Yeah. So, uh, But people don't realize that the officer who responds has a big effect on that person down the road. If you can, you can at that moment convince that person he or she did the right thing, and and it works, because it, I've seen it working. And I've interviewed people after that in regard to because we had to go to court back and forth, and they were saying, you know, thank you. I want to see my rabbi. I want to see my priest. And he said, well, the, the detective, uh, his advice was good. You know, that's awesome. So, I and, had no idea that it plays that big of a role. Um, right. So, one, and, yes. I'm sorry. The last question we have for you is: If you look at the United States, I do sense that there is going to be waves of civil unrest that are going to occur for maybe months or maybe years at a time. But I do hope that things will eventually get back to some semblance of normality in the years to come. It may take a long time. I do think that we're in for a, a big um, financial uh, situation for for a while, but I do think things will eventually return to normal now. If people have to engage in violence in order to protect themselves and protect their families, should they be thinking about some of the long-term ramifications? I mean, do they should they be aware of the fact that, okay, well, you know, you have to be aware of every time you engage in violence with someone, if you have to kill someone or if you have to, you know, violently beat them in order to protect yourself, that at some point when things come back to normal, there's going to be some kind of reckoning where the, that person's family members may come after you or you you may one day be uh, in jail if things ever come back to normal. Should that be something you should be thinking about, or should you just be like, you know what, I'm in the heat of the moment right now. I've got to do whatever it is to protect myself because I don't know if there isn't a tomorrow coming. Well, pretty much right. Absolutely. You do what you have to do in the heat of the moment. As far as uh, how it's going to affect us economically down the road, that's going to happen. We all know that. So. But as far as you personally, as a human being, you had to do what you had to do 
uh, you gonna you're gonna think, hey, I did the right thing. I I defended my family. The other question is, are you gonna be concerned about retaliation? Very rare. It very rare happens. I've never seen it, it happen. That's a that is a common question by a victim. Are they gonna send their friends after me? Are they gonna send their family after me? It never happens. It only happens if you're an organized crime. So, but it not, does not happen in the everyday, and I hate to say normal, normal uh, life of a street thug hoodlum criminal. They just, it just doesn't happen. They go on to whatever they're doing in their life. And some of them say, hey, my man got locked up. He's in jail for homicide. Uh, I'm going to be careful now. So uh, as far as concerned about retaliation, uh, it's good to think about, and it's also good to be prepared for it, right? Never happens. I've never seen it happen. I don't know any, anyone in law enforcement that I've been through in my over half a century, like you mentioned, in law enforcement does not happen unless there's a personal aspect to it. Family. You killed your brother-in-law, you know? So things like that. Or you killed your father-in-law. Because, yeah, that's a different uh, type situation, Ryan. So, Lou Talano, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. A riveting interview, and I, I think you brought a lot of excellent points and great advice. To learn more about Lou, please go to his website at streetwisepro.com. You can also go to another website called NYVA, NYV, nyvpa.org and learn more about the New York Police uh, Association. Lou, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Ryan, or just Google my name, Lou Talano. Joining us now is Bob Reynolds. He's a professional firearms instructor. He's somebody I've had the pleasure of working with. He's an excellent teacher, and his knowledge of firearms and engagement is incredible. Bob, welcome to our show. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Bob, as the world right now, it seems like it's devolving, and it seems that violence is happening more and more. So for the average person who maybe they, they maybe they do have a gun, but they've never had any kind of direct engagement, what can people generally expect if they are thrust in a situation where they have to defend themselves? Does the average person going to be readily available, mentally strong to do that? And what are some of the things you recommend to do if this is the first time you're engaging in combat? And you have to protect yourself and have to protect your family. Well, it, it, it's the assumption is uh, many people, especially today, there's a there's a there's an increased volume of firearms purchases by people that normally wouldn't have a firearm. So my my uh, recommendation with that, that person, uh, uh, you know, seek out some firearms training and some proficiency. Just because you have a gun doesn't mean you can you know how to use it. Um, so training and learning how to use that particular device uh, for self-defense is key. One of the biggest uh, issues in self-defense is basically you know the the adrenal stress response that that affects people when 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 uh, when their lives are in jeopardy. Uh, you know, we, we have a term which is basically ability, opportunity, and jeopardy um, when when we're addressing uh, an offender or an attacker. And 
to learn to operate in those three realms and understand what those three realms are is is key to a good self defense um, again you know someone might uh, have the ability to harm you but he's uh, you know 25 50 yards away uh, then you know that that person approaches into what we call a, a a yellow zone from a green zone to a yellow zone when they're actually closer to you now they have an opportunity and then they they approach in the black zone and and things seem to just uh, happen very quickly in that area so so getting good competent training to understand those zones is is it's what's going to keep you from being hurt in in a, in, a, in jeopardy uh, in a jeopardy zone basically op, you know the ability opportunity and jeopardy um, learning to fight and or flight understanding those those options before you before you even leave the house is really really something key to your mindset to uh, to protect yourself especially with a handgun also the proficiency is is very important you can't just buy a pistol and then expect that you're going to be able to uh, use it uh, effectively without harming others in the surrounding area uh, you know again we go back to the adrenal stress response large motor motor skills are are what basically are the only things that are functioning in that in that kind of uh, um, in that kind of situation um, and in many in many cases, if you don't learn to use that tool, which is the firearm that you purchased to protect yourself, then you could actually be causing harm to others around you. So training is training is definitely key. Okay. And what are some of the basic firearms a person should have? I mean, if you were to say bare minimum, what is the one firearm a person should have for self-defense? Uh, the bare minimum. Bare minimum, if if you don't leave the house, a shotgun, uh, a a a a a short uh, a tactical shotgun, which is, has a smaller profile than a than a hunting shotgun, uh, and it's designed to be wieldable in tight areas and also easy to use. Uh, the sec the second uh, item is a handgun. Handguns are are definitely a a primary choice, and then a carbine for for protecting yourself. Yeah. So so three devices: What's uh, the, the a handgun, one? shotgun, and uh, a carbine, an AR-15, okay. AK-47, um, something something of that sort uh, that gives you uh, gives you uh, it, it gives you um, a a better stance for protecting your environment, and it gives you a, a little more ammo to use as well. And what are some of the ways that a person can present themselves that will defer, will prevent an engagement from happening? Like, should you fire a warning shot? Should you let people know that you are armed? Like, what are some of the ways you can no. do things you should do in order to hopefully uh, protect yourself from getting, even engaging in an attack in the future or engagement in the future? Okay, so a warning shot. Uh, you you could perceive that to be you know shooting between the legs or firing a shot in the air. Well, shooting between the legs, you're going to cause a ricochet. There could be uh, innocent bystanders there, and at that point, you strike someone that's not the the attacker, an innocent bystander. You're now the felon, 
Okay, you will be charged with, uh, if you kill the person, you'll be charged with invo involuntary manslaughter. Um, and or if you shoot in the air, uh, bullets go up, they also come down. Um, I was, uh, you know, there was an incident in Florida where uh, someone was celebrating the 4th of July and he shot in the air. And uh, unfortunately, the, the round came down and struck a young child in the head and, and, and you know, killed him. So warning shots are not, not recommended. Um, when we teach, we teach warning shots are usually center mass in the chest. That's your warning shot. And, and that's, that's your last recourse. That's not, that's not your first recourse. Now, when, the way you present yourself, you would never, you never would say, hey, I'm armed, leave me alone. That, that basically could urge the attacker to try to take your firearm. So we don't urge that. It's been, you know, concealed. Uh, means concealed, and that also means in 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 uh, telling people around you that you're concealed or not. You shouldn't, um, and also you just go about your business like a, so uh, we, like you would on an everyday. Occurrence. I'm curious, mm -hmm. why shouldn't you tell people that you have a firearm? Do you think that in one way it would divert deter people from saying, "Well, this guy's got a firearm. Probably don't want to go to his house, or we don't want to mess with him." Well. Well, you, you have you have uh, people with uh, a left-minded uh, leaning that basically, you know, that, that you know they could cause trouble. For instance, uh, I'll take the instance from uh, Walmart. The gentleman that saw somebody that was carrying concealed, however, it uh, the firearm printed, and then he tackled him, thinking he was doing a good service. So, so there's there's that perception. Um, the other the other perception is is basically you, you just want to keep people at ease. I carry quite a bit, almost all the time, um, and I don't. I don't tell people that I'm carrying. Um, I just. I just go about my day-to-day -day business. Also, if you tell, if you're telling a stranger that you're carrying, how do you know that that's not a felon or a would-be attacker? So, Some so point. you know, you don't. You don't do that. Yeah. So now, under under North Carolina law, if an officer approaches you in the commission of his duties. And he's asking you questions, and and he confronts you. Then you have a duty to notify him that you are a concealed carry permit holder and you are armed. Okay, but in other states and and several other states, that's not a requirement because their understanding is concealed means concealed, unknown. Right. right. I want to um, give a situation to you because it seems mm -hmm. that at least in the U.S. there are certain cities that get overrun with people that are creating violence. And certain times, you know, the rule of law seems to be completely out. If you're in a situation where that you cannot call the police, where the rule of law does not apply, and you have to take action at that point in time, I mean, do you do, you do whatever you can to keep yourself alive and preserve your family alive? Or do you also have to keep in mind that, you know, if law and order does return, that there are going to be consequences for whatever happened. That's the thing I think sometimes that people are having in the back of their mind. I wonder if that actually prevents people from taking action. Say, well, you know, I do want to engage. Well, I, I do want to. I do want to, you know, stop this person. But what if, you know, the thing gets. What if I'm spending the rest of my life in prison because of this? Well, that's a good point. And and here's how I'd like to answer that. If you have to spend your the rest of your life in prison by, for protecting your family or yourself from being murdered then you're, you're alive. 
right? The other alternative is that you're no longer on this earth, right? You have been, you've you've taken the you've take made the decision not to not to respond and and follow possibly um, a bad law, right? And and that puts you in a situation where you're murdered, or your life has been taken, or you've been permanently disabled. In North Carolina, uh, under those circumstances, you're allowed to use deadly force to protect yourself. Now, there are there are statutes in place that try to, to help you make common sense decisions to not attend, uh, not not attend, you know, sit, uh, 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 venues and 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 as such that would put you in jeopardy. Such, you know, the law in North Carolina is you're not allowed to go armed to a protest. Okay, you can go armed to a parade. That's a that's a different that's a different uh, different scenario. But you can't go. You shouldn't go armed to a protest. Uh, certain medical clinics you you're not allowed to have. Uh, a pro, you go to those medical clinics armed. Um, things like that. So, but um, bottom line, you. you you're the only person that can protect yourself. You're the only person that can protect your family in those given situations. Uh, there's there's only about 300,000 sworn officers in the United States. I know that's number numbers grown, but you know there's over 330 million people in the United States. So, the, and the United States being a country with the the the, the country that is that has laws that actually give you the right to protect yourself. You are allowed to defend yourself and your freedom. So, yeah. So if I'm in a situation where, where I'm driving and somebody's blocked my highway, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to, to break free of that situation. And if necessary, if uh, the threat becomes um, life, the, the act, actions become life-threatening, I will use deadly force to protect myself and my family. Mr. Bob Reynolds, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Again, Bob is a professional firearms instructor. We'll send you a link to his page. Highly recommend if you are in the North Carolina area, you connect with this gentleman, you learn from him. I've had the pleasure of, of learning from him, and I can say that my family is a lot safer because of it. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome, Ryan. Thank you. It is a great pleasure to welcome back to our show Mr. Edward Carswell. He is a survivalist, incredible prepper. I've checked out his channel a lot of times. Please go to his website at PrepperNurse1.com and also go on YouTube and check out his channel, which is PrepperNurse1. Ed, welcome back to our show. Well, thank you for having me on again. I appreciate that. Welcome. So the focus of today is are you going to have what it takes to do? The question is what are you going to do? if the situation gets to the point where you have to, to kill someone? And what are some of the reasons why I think some people will be able to defend themselves and reasons why others won't, they'll freeze or they won't be able to be capable of committing violence even if the person is coming after them? Well, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that. I, I just did a video earlier today and I talked about this very subject and I used the example of uh, people in their cars being surrounded by, and I don't want to call them protesters because they're not protesters when they're uh, assaulting people and hurting people. So I'll just say a mob. Um, when you're surrounded by a mob in your car and they're beating on your windows, and you have seen already the video footage of what happens to a lot of these people, they're pulled out of their cars, they're beaten, 
and they don't, they have the opportunity to drive through these people and they don't uh, because they panic. Uh, they don't know what to do because society deems that we need to act in a certain way. But we also have that fight or flight instinct in every one of us. So what I encourage everybody to do is evaluate situations ahead of time so that when the time comes, if that ever comes up, that situation ever happens, that you already know what you're going to do in your head and you react to that situation. Well, I should say, let me rephrase that. You act instead of react. Because when you have too much time to think about something, the result has been proven. They break the windows, they pull that person out of the car, and they're beat into unconsciousness and severely hurt. They're in an automobile where they could just step on the gas, drive through that crowd. You know, maybe they run somebody over, but, you know, you have to make that decision. Are you willing, as we were talking about, to hurt somebody else to protect yourself? Now, let's, let's make that scenario a little bit stronger. You have your wife and your kids in the car with you. You should not hesitate. Your family always has to come first. You need to be in that mindset. And again, it's like I, I really encourage people to contemplate things. Because here, here's the thing that people don't really think about. Once you commit an act where you actually have to use violence and hurt somebody, that's going to stay with you forever. That just doesn't go away. Um, it doesn't go out of your mind. Uh, never mind my rooster in the background. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's going to always be with you. And so you need to make the decisions and, and think about those things well ahead of time. Uh, you know, run those scenarios through your mind. Be prepared to do what is necessary. You know, that's, I, I think that's what people really need to think about. Okay. And when I think things get progressively worse in America, which I think that when the next stage of the economy, as it gets progressively worse, I'm sure we're going to see more violence. What types of people do you believe are more prone to initiate violence towards others? And how can we be aware and utilize, uh, you know, your years of psychology, your years of observing people to identify those who would be more, more likely to attack you and attack your family? Well, the, the, realistically, that's really not a hard thing to, to, to evaluate. You look at body posture, the way somebody is approaching you. Um, you can tell. I mean, most people, it's, it's just an instinctive thing. If somebody's coming at you in a very aggressive um, manner, that's, you better be ready to, you know, in, in that situation, uh, you know, so obviously always observe what's going on. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a great example of that. Um, my daughter had to walk two tenths of a mile down to the bus stop. And I always told her, you know, we live out in the country. It's a, it's a very easy area where you could be kidnapped. Something could happen. I said, always have situational awareness of what is going on. So you really need to be aware of your surroundings. Who's approaching you. Like when I sit in a restaurant, I always sit with my, my back against the wall, facing the door, knowing where my exits are in case something happens. I know how to react. And it's just, it's a natural instinct thing for me being ex-military. I'm always looking at a situation. You have to evaluate possible threats. And so that's a thing too, that people, it's not something that you just pick up and go, oh yeah, I got that. It's something that happens over time. And it just becomes natural if you're doing it on a regular basis. And what are some of the 
guns or self-defense tools that you recommend people have the that you should have at the bare minimum? Um, well, in your home, I think everybody should have at least a 12 gauge shotgun minimum, because even if you're not really proficient with a, a weapon, uh, if you are using double odd buckshot, um, that is going to be something that is going to be a really good thing to have because you literally can point the gun in the direction of the person uh, and with double odd buckshot, you're not going to miss. I would absolutely recommend to people to get safety courses, get proper training, know um, know the uh, safety of weapons, know how to handle them, know how to use them. Make sure they're spending a lot of time actually firing their weapons. Uh, you know, having a handgun is a great thing if you can get it in your state. Um, like I know with New York State, it's like you have to jump through hoops to get your pistol permit, so they make it a lot more difficult. But um, Again, a, sh- a shotgun is a great thing to have. It's a great home defense weapon. Now, for an everyday carry weapon, um, again, it, that comes down to personal preference, but you really want to make sure that whatever weapon that you're carrying is going to have stopping power. A 22 will take somebody out, but they could still come and hurt you uh, at the same time. So you really need to think about, you know, if, I, if I'm carrying, say, um, a nine millimeter or a 45 that's absolutely going to have more than enough stopping power, especially if you're depending on what kind of ammunition you're using to stop that threat. And that's, that's the biggest thing that people need to remember too. You need to neutralize that threat. So if you shoot somebody once and let's say you hit them in the leg, they still have the capability of hurting you. So you need to completely neutralize that threat until that threat is gone. And so that means you keep shooting until they're no longer a threat. And uh, a lot of people can't, you know, fathom that, but you do what you do, what is necessary. Right. And if we go through a situation where society breaks down, which I think it is, I feel like it is going to be at least in some parts of the U.S. where we're not going to have a lot of civilization, because just considering the fact that people are responding I mean, the fact that Marxism seems to be taking hold in the U.S. I think reveals all there is to know about the level of civility in that. But if you get in a situation where law enforcement is really not to be called on, you can't really depend on them, and your community is being attacked, I know it sounds sadistic. I know we touched upon it the last time, but do you make an example out of somebody who attacks your community? I mean, do you do something to them? that is considered to be barbaric in order to deter others from coming in, even though doing that barbaric thing may be obviously harmful to your own health, maybe disturbing psychologically speaking, but knowing that you may actually save other people because you'll probably strike fear in all those who would attack you and attack your community. Um, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you what, I, if somebody came up here, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm well out in the country, um, and somebody came up here and tried to do harm, uh, what I plan on doing personally, if, if it came to that, if we're, and, and of course we're talking worst case scenario, end of civilization as we know it, every man for themselves type of a situation. Uh, if I had to shoot somebody, I would string them up at the end of the road uh, on a telephone pole or something, and they would have a sign on them that says, this is what happens to looters. And I'm going to tell you what, when psychologically, for people, if they see that corpse up there with that sign and they thought they might have some bad intentions, they're going to realize that they're not dealing with pacifists. They're not dealing with weak-minded people. 
They're dealing with people that are willing and able to do what is necessary. So I think it's really, really important that, yes, um, you have to have in, in, in a post-event, there has to be very, very strict rules. Even, even in a survival group, there needs to be strict rules. There has to be right up front, people know what is acceptable behavior and what is not. You know, um, just because somebody is for say the enemy, it doesn't mean that you rape, um, you know, and do those type of things. I would not tolerate that in my group that, that I'm going to tell you that right now, that would not be tolerated. There's no need for unnecessary violence. You do the amount of violence that you need to do to quell the threat. Um, you know, and then you, then you go on from there, you know, uh, it's just, but to, to hurt people unnecessarily, I, that I would not tolerate, but, you know, you do have to absolutely set examples, um, and let that fear if people, if see, here's the thing, unfortunately in our society, people only understand a couple of things. And one of those things they understand is strength. Okay. And if they know that somebody is willing to do whatever is necessary, it gives them pause for thought. They will go on to weaker targets. Uh, they're not going to go after a secured compound um, with people that are willing to fight because they don't want that. They want the weak-minded people that they can roll over. I'm glad you said that. And we were talking uh, based about this, uh, I think it was yesterday, talking about the state of America at least. From what you see, do you think that most people have the resolve and the courage and the strength to resist not only uh, people that are attacking them, but tyranny at large. Do you feel that the, the American public at large has the spirit, or maybe there's only a small percentage of people that have it? Because I definitely have it. I will not be terrorized, and I will not capitulate before tyranny, and I'm always seeking others that are feeling the same way. I'm just curious how you see it, how you view the, uh, the consciousness of the American people, or maybe even the world at large. I think what you're, you're going to see... And, and I think it's going to be surprising to some people, people that you think would stand up and do what's necessary will do it. And some won't And people that you never expected to have that backbone are going to find that backbone and they're going to stand up too. I, I, I think overall, because all we see in the news constantly is all the negativity. We see that absolutely constantly, uh, nothing but negativity. You know, and it is It's very, very depressing. But the thing is, there's a lot of good people out there, a lot. Um, and, and I've been very, very fortunate that I've got to, uh, you know, meet and talk to um, a ton of people. You know, so, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a cool thing. You know what I mean? It's like there's great people out there. So I think there's enough good people out there that will stand up. They will band together and they will stop the idiots, I'll just put it like that. The people that, you know, are trying to force their will on other people. There's enough good people out there that I think that, uh, you know, would absolutely stand up and say, nope, that's not going to happen here. That's awesome. And the final question I have for you, Ed, is if I look and I observe the world right now, I see a lot of young men and young women just immersed in toxic masculinity and toxic femininity. I don't believe that uh, the, the collective wisdom of the, of the culture in any way, shape, or form is doing things that is, is, that's helping uh, boys become men and girls become women. I think it's very toxic. So I'm curious, what are some of the, do you agree with that or disagree with that? And also, what are some of the values 
that uh, men and women should be taught right now that, that would make them strong, that would make them very strong, resistant to, uh, to tyrants, resistant to violence, and overall just be strong members of society. Well, the thing is, I, I think the, the biggest problem in our society, in, in my opinion, is the breakdown of the family unit. Uh, that is a huge, huge problem in this country. So that love and that compassion and that bond of family is just not there um, all over the country right now and all over the world as well, unfortunately. And in certain regions of the world, it's still there. But, you know, it, it's it, that's slipping. Um, men need to realize that it's OK to act like a man. You know, you can still be a, a very masculine and, uh, and and stuff like that, but also at the same time, and this guy is kind of an oxymoron, be able to cry and show emotions. There's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't make you weak. Um, I think it makes you more of a man, to be honest with you. I, I'm going to tell you for, for myself, what changed me fundamentally as a man is when I became a father. Um, it absolutely changed who I was. It, it changed my whole outlook on life. Um, and everything, but it also made me realize my role as a man is to protect my family, keep them safe. And so that even became stronger and there's nothing wrong with that. Where a lot of our society today, they, they, you know, they call it toxic masculinity. Like it's all, like it's a bad thing. And uh, that is absolutely not, you know, you can still be sensitive, but be a strong man at the same time. And I think you, it, it's a, it's a healthy combination of the two, uh, you know, as far as women, you know, uh, it, there's nothing wrong with women going out and doing non-traditional jobs and stuff like that if, they, if they're able to do it. I don't have a problem with that at all, you know. Uh, but again, it's like it comes down to what are your wants and your goals? What are your hopes and your dreams? I mean, do you want to start a family? Do you want to be able to, you know, be that stay-at-home mom or not? And so those things are, um, you know, th that's important stuff too. So it's like, you know, again, it's like, that that's a topic we could do. We could, you and I could sit down for an hour <laughs> just on that topic <laughs> and, uh, and discuss it. But you know, again, I think that the major problem in our society again today is the breakdown of that family unit. The fact that there is no respect for anybody. Um, we are in a very me 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 oriented society now. Uh, Self glorification, uh, not thinking of others. And and, and again, I'm not. I, I can't say everybody. But I do see a lot of it, especially in the cities. Uh, there's absolutely no respect, which is a very sad thing. I agree with you. Mr. Edward Carswell, I want to thank you so much for being with us today, coming on our show once again. I also encourage you to check out some of Ed's previous interviews that we did on Outer Limits of Inner Truth. Like we did two others with him. You learn more about Ed by going to PrepperNurse1.com. Also go to YouTube and check out his YouTube channel, PrepperNurse1. I, I check it out a lot, and they're always doing uh, helpful videos. Ed, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. It is a great honor once again to have on our show Nancy Dannison. She's an after-death survivor. And you can listen to Nancy, one of her 11 or 12 interviews that she's previously done on our show. You can also find her by going to her website at backwardsbooks.com. Nancy, based on your experience of having experienced clinical death firsthand and being in the afterlife, what are the metaphysical implications if a human has to take the life of another human. Does that person have to, do they go to hell for that? Do they get punished in the afterlife? What is your perspective on that? 
well, my perspective before I died was the same as the Roman Catholic Church's, and that is that it was a mortal sin and that we would be punished everlastingly in hell or at least go to purgatory for it. But while I was in the afterlife for an extended period of time, I was given just volumes and volumes of information and directly from source, which is what I call God. And I was told in no uncertain terms that there is no judgment in the afterlife for what we do while we're inside human bodies. There's no, he- there's no hell, there's no purgatory, there's no punishment. We do have a life review, and we will see that event. You know, like if a police officer has to shoot someone, or if a firefighter can't get to somebody in a fire and they die, you will, that person will relive that event and feel all the feelings, their own and the feelings of all the other people involved during the life review, but you will be bathed in unconditional love. So it's not as bad as it sounds. Jeez. Well, what if you are like cruel and sadistic and you, you take, you took a lot of delight in harming people, people that gets the humans in this reality will say, well, wasn't well, there some kind of justice? Isn't there some kind of justice for somebody who, who harms another? Don't they, don't they go someplace horrible or don't they, experience something horrible the justice system is in the physical world so the human governments and religions and families and communities all apply their own sense of justice and their own punishments for behaviors like that and there are always repercussions but they won't be in the afterlife. They'll be in this life. Got it. But if you say, for example, if you do like harm someone and you do commit an atrocity, you experience that atrocity when you die, you feel exactly what you put out to that person? Yes. The pur- but the purpose of the, the life review isn't to punish you and make you feel terrible for what your human body did. The purpose is so that you will see and understand what was going on. You know, why did it happen? Why did you do that thing? You know, how did the other person feel? It's, it's a learning experience to help you, in, you know, in the next incarnation. Got it. So if you have to kill someone in self-defense in this particular lifetime, when you kill someone, is there any kind of karmic repercussions that say, well, okay, because you've killed someone in this lifetime, that that is going to mean that in the next lifetime you're gonna they're gonna kill you, or is there any kind of hangover, karmic hangover from this particular lifetime that will go into a future lifetime? I learned in the afterlife that there's no karma at all. Okay. So there oh. can't be any karmic hangover, but. You and the person that you killed may agree between the two of you while you're in the afterlife, between incarnations, that you're going to change positions. Wow. And when next time you incarnate, maybe the other person will will kill the person that killed him. So, But that's totally by agreement. It's not imposition of any kind of punishment. It's just what two souls get together and decide 
they want to experience. Okay. I believe that in one of our previous interviews you discussed the, that there's no destiny, but yet there's, uh, from what we were talking about in this conversation, that there are agreements. So what is the difference between a destiny that needs to be fulfilled and agreements that souls have? Can some souls decide that they're going to have an agreement to uh, kill each other? And then because of circumstances that change on earth, they decide that's not going to happen. I mean, is, that a, is there a variance as far as what is agreed upon prior to coming in here compared to what actually happens? Yeah, destiny, yeah, destiny implies that something set in stone can't be changed. But we souls inside these human bodies manifest the lives of our physical hosts on a moment-to-moment basis. So it's always up to change. So the two souls that agreed in the afterlife that they're, you know, one of them's going to kill the other in physical life, they can change their minds. They come up with a new agreement once they incarnate. Circumstances can change. Everything is a matter of choice. Got it. And some people right now, if you look at America, some people think that we're going to have some massive civil unrest and there's going to be a civil war coming and it just... If you look at the media, it seems like they're just every day tensions are getting higher and higher and worse. Based on your experience in the afterlife, did you foresee anything uh, similar to what is happening right now? Do you think that or do you feel that widespread violence will occur? Because this particular show was made for those who don't want to initiate violence against anyone else that feel that they're going to have to be violent to protect themselves because it just seems like the situation or the collective world as a whole is getting out of hand. And violence will may very well be brought upon the doorstep of peaceful people. So I'm just curious. Uh, when I was in the afterlife, yeah, when I was in the afterlife, I saw the entire history and future of Earth and all the humans inhabiting it. And I saw that during a transition period from the what's called an epoch, E-P-O-C-H, that we're in now, the second epoch. To the third epoch, things that we're seeing right now happened in in the history or the future that I, that you know source showed me in the afterlife. So this was not unexpected to me. I did not see any wars. Really? You know, so no civil, civil war in the United States or global wars. I mean, I saw skirmishes, but no cataclysmic wars. Now, that doesn't mean things can't change, but at least, you know, what I've been seeing so far in the last few years does match up with what I saw in the afterlife. And I'm hoping that there won't be any wars because that's what I saw in the afterlife. But the most important thing, I think, Ryan, is that I was told that there are a group of souls that I call all those with an interest in Earth. Catchy name. (laughs) And all those with an interest in Earth can collectively manifest a more peaceful environment, society, culture, situation on Earth. So if enough people turn their attention and intention to peace, it will be done. And when it comes to those particular types of people, if you have a majority that are in their bodies that don't have that connection to their spirit, that are just uh, human animals, 
I guess if you described it, it doesn't matter who they are, but just like animals, I guess humans are, are predominantly animals, and they turn to people. Do you need a majority of people to do this, or can you have a minority of people that focus on uh, like meditation, focus on their reconnecting with their spirit, that can actually bring about a more peaceful uh, result as opposed to a majority that is out of control, that is not in touch with their spirit? I don't know how many it takes, but it's not just the efforts of the souls inside humans that are alive now. All of the humans who have ever, or all of the souls who have ever been on earth in any form, all of the souls that are still in the afterlife who are interested in earth, all of those can collectively manifest changes in the, in the earth and its environment and its societies. So we don't have to look for, you know, how many currently living people can we get on board? <laughs> you have to make connections with those. And, That's pretty wild. Wow. Well, what I would re recommend is that, you know, the people who are interested in peace and, and bringing some, some love and kindness and compassion to our society, that they communicate with what I call all those in the afterlife and say, you know, add your intentions to mine, you know, boost my power signal, you know, help us manifest a more peaceful earth. Okay. Nancy, on this particular show, we have um, several people that are listening that are probably listening to our show for the very first time and that are religious, that do follow a particular religion. So that being said, can they particularly uh, pray through their use of their religious or spiritual practices to manifest what you just described? And can they engage and pray for the hope that those who have passed uh, come on board with them? Can they utilize that through their organized religion or do they have to do this and uh, do this engagement outside any form of organized religion? Can it be done through their organized religion? Yes, you can use prayer as your means of communicating with all those in the afterlife and all those who love you, whether they're alive or dead. The difference I see between the, the prayer and the supplications that religions talk about is that prayer puts you in a submissive position and you're asking for somebody outside yourself to do, to do something. Whereas manifesting is you just apply your attention and intention to making changes to the earth. And you're in control. You've got the power to manifest. You're not a victim or a supplicant asking somebody outside yourself. That may be a a distinction with a difference to some people. Uh, but, you know, I, I've told I've told a lot of my readers that you know if their best way of attent of focusing their attention and intentions through prayer, then use that. Got it. And there are other, I just want to sorry we're running a little uh, late with this because I just have two more questions. You're so fascinated, by the way. <laughs> um, there are certain angelic beings that have been prominently known through religion or spirituality. One of them is. Saint Michael the Archangel. I've heard this, this being 
mentioned several times. This is beyond organized religion. There's also the Archangel Mega Metatron, and there's Raphael. Some of these archangels or angelic beings, can people reach out to them and also align them to this goal of peace on Earth, or are they pretty much non-factors? Do they do they care, or is that is that a waste of time? Is it better to connect with humans that are no longer in the physical form and connect with them as opposed to the angelic beings? Or can the angelic beings actually be another asset to this cause? I was shown while I was in the afterlife that there are no no angelic beings. There are no hierarchies. There are no angels. There's no archangels. There are no hierarchy and a, a ranking is a human concept. It applies to physical life because humans are animals and animals do have hierarchies. There's an alpha male and a beta male and you know, the rest of the herd follows them. There's nothing like that in the afterlife. Every single soul is exactly equal to every other soul. There are no superior beings. And answer the last question I have for you is for those who are listening right now, that do not wish to ever, ever have a violent confrontation with another where they have to be put in a position to take the life of another, is there anything that they can do to manifest a peaceful life or, or, or path going forward in their life where they don't have anything like this? Is there anything that they can do to kind of put information out or put energy out in the universe that's going to deflect any kind of confrontation in the future? Or can they meditate and say, look, if there's a soul arrangement where I, I'm supposed to kill someone or someone's supposed to kill me, I, I negate that right away. Is there anything they can do on that front? Yes. I was told that we souls inside bodies manifest what we truly and deeply believe. And so all the events and opportunities and circumstances of our life are the result of deeply held beliefs, whether we're aware of what we believe or not. So if we have a deeply held belief in the value and the sanctity of life and that, you know, we will not participate in an event that harms another person, then you will manifest events in your life that reflect that belief. Awesome. It's Nancy Dannison. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. You can learn more about Nancy by going to her website at backwardsbooks.com. You can also go to outerlimitsradio.com and listen to one of the 12 other interviews we've done with Nancy. Nancy, we love you so much. Thank you for being with us and sharing your wisdom once again. Thank you, Ryan. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. I know this was a tough one, but we appreciate you hanging in there. I want a special thanks to our great guests, Dr. Carol Lieberman, Lou Talano, Bob Reynolds, Edward Carswell, Nancy Dannison. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Constance Tellis, Ms. Lisa McGarity, and our associate producer, Jenny Lamisa. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. And till the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and fears. Take care, and thank you so much for listening.